17 years ago, <clears throat> Emily, uh, we were doing our, our family devotion, our, our reading through the Bible, and Emily asked me, were any of the patriarchs, the very first people, uh, uh, Adam, th- those guys, Seth, were any of them alive and died in the flood? And I said, I don't know. Because, you know, they live for such long periods of time and their lives overlapped. And so Emily and I got a piece of graph paper down and we actually wrote, uh, we just read the names, Adam, and uh, we wrote each one of the names down. And then we, we said, okay, he lived this long and then he had a child. And so we allowed each block, little block on the graph paper to represent 100 years and we graphed it out. And um, we, we learned that, in fact, uh, know that Methuselah died the year of the flood, and so uh, there were none of the patriarchs that were alive when the flood occurred, um, except Noah, and he uh, was saved. And so we enjoyed doing that so much and the the fun of it that we went ahead and continued graphing out uh, because the Bible also says, and Noah had a son, and his name was so-and-so, and he had a son, who, and then there you got Shem, and and we're going along and we're graphing out from uh, the, uh, the age of the beginning, which we called zero, out to when Abram was born. And I realized it was like 1993 or something. And again, this was just for the fun of it. And when it hit me that the time was, the timeline was uh, something that was similar in time, uh, I thought, well, I'll have some fun with this. And so it was actually... Uh, teaching at a church at the time, and so I got uh, a whiteboard, and I, I wanted to use this as an example of how bad theology could be written, because it, it clicked to me that if, and assuming, which is not an accurate assumption, that genealogies tell everybody. They don't. That was, that's part of the reason, because they skip people. They only talk about the important people. But just assuming that the genealogies tell everyone, and if you go through the the center of human history would fall at the cross if Jesus came back in 2121. So Jesus is coming back in 2121. And then my plan had been to go, ha, 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 see how um, you can come up with really bad theology from decent ideas. And I look across the audience and people are fervently taking notes. And I realized that my example of bad theology was bad in and of itself because people were like, yeah, Jesus is coming back in 2121. Um, just a few years ago, there was some fool that came out and said, uh, Jesus is coming back on this day and this hour. And I, I read a th- or listened to a thing on NPR that people were selling their homes and getting ready for Jesus to come back on that particular date. And I, it didn't happen because we're still here. <clears throat> and um, it's almost like we forget that Jesus said, no man knows the day or the hour, but I'll come like a thief in the night. He said that specifically. So why we have little charts and try to figure stuff out is beyond me because Jesus said, we're not going to know. It's at that time when you least expect it is when I'm going to come back. Now, the reason why I bring that up is as I, as I have talked about uh, the fact that we are, are talking about current events Uh, everybody that's talked to me has assumed that that means I'm going to sit down and say, because this thing has happened and this thing has happened, it's showing that Jesus is going to come back any day now, and they think that what I'm saying by current events is eschatology. And so I wanted to take a little bit of time tonight to say, 
You know when Jesus is coming back? Any day now. Well, I know this. I don't know when he's coming back, but I know that at the end of today, we're one day closer to when he's going to come back. And that he is coming back. Amen. That there is no doubt. Uh, Peter, when he was arguing for the second coming, says, just like there was a flood, just like there was, God's destruction was held back for a period of time, and then his grace was no more, he's coming back. And when that will happen, no man knows the day nor the hour. And I, I've often said that if you, if you get overly impressed with any theologian past time, in, in the past, Martin Luther, John Calvin, Jonathan Edwards, any of those guys, you really get to where you're thinking, oh man, those guys were so godly. Read their eschatology, and it will bring them back to earth. Because some of the stuff that they wrote about was absolutely stupid now that we're 400 years ahead. I mean, you have lots of people before 1940 that wrote entire books trying to explain away part of, part of end-time prophecy because Israel could not possibly become a nation again. And so whole books are written to explain why that's not actually talking about Israel as a nation. Well, now, after 1948, we look at that and go, well, did you not trust God? And so I'm saying all that to say this. Uh, we aren't the first group of people to ever have th this issue. In fact, you have a book of the Bible in 1 Thessalonians that was written specifically to address the fact because apparently the Thessalonians were going up on a hillside and doing rapture practice and getting ready to go. And they quit their jobs and they, 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 they were ready for Jesus to come back. And Paul tells them, he's coming back. But he's coming back like a thief in the night. And so what we're to do is to live every day knowing that Jesus could come back at any moment, but at the same time, living our lives in such a way that we reflect Christ out to the world so that it has an impact. And so, um, as we talk about current events, my plan had not been to say that this happens and this happens and this happens. Never, ever build your theology around what is happening in the world. It will backfire on you just about every time. Because you know what? The world is... Uh, Satan is the god of this world. And so what we have to do as Christians is realize that he's coming back, but we don't know when he's coming back. And it, it's that way by design. It seems like as I read Paul's writing, he was absolutely convinced that Jesus was coming back in his lifetime. And if Jesus comes back before I finish speaking, or Jesus comes back in 4,000 years, he told us we wouldn't expect it. And so, um, I'm just laying that out there. That one's for free. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, Lord, I thank you for um, the way that you're working in our body. Lord, I thank you for the people that are growing in Christ's likeness. Lord, I thank you for um, just the way that uh, I, I see these people loving each other, serving each other, doing things to help each other. Lord, I thank you for that. And I thank you that, they, that the world will know what you're, that we are your disciples by the way that we show love to each other. And God, I pray that you would give us the strength to look for your fingerprint in the news, but look for your face in the word. Lord, I pray that you would, your spirit would fill this place and you would give me guidance and that you would, would be with this, this group of believers. In Jesus' name, 
Amen. Any questions about that? I know it's a scary thing to ask questions about end time prophecy. Um, yes, sir. Yes. But no man knoweth the hour. Or the day. You're right. But he's saying when these things happen, the clock is clicking. You know. And the clock is clicking. Well, again, we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that from the time that Jesus was alive until right now, we are 2,000 years closer to when he's coming back. And a lot of those signs and stuff, if you look at, okay, wars and rumors of wars. If you look at human history, there's never been a time when there wasn't wars and rumors of wars. But in human history, in over 2,000 years, the first real true Christ, 1948, like you said, when Israel became a nation. That is a, and Jesus told us, he said, that just like, and he, he gave the uh, Judean equivalent of red sky, Night, sailors delight, red sky, morning, sailors take warning. He says, you guys are smart enough to where you can look at the sky and tell what the weather's going to be, so watch for the signs. So I'm not saying that we're not supposed to do that. We are, and we're supposed to see that it's getting closer and closer and closer and live our lives accordingly. But at the same time, if, uh, like the Thessalonians, if I'm not living a peaceable life among my fellow man and I'm not doing everything in my power to show the love of Christ to, to those kids, knowing that they're the future of this church. I mean, there are people that had this attitude that says, well, let me get just, I don't know if you remember this, in 1988, a book was published, 88 Reasons Why Jesus Will Come Back in 1988. This is to my shame. But I went to Mike Davis, who was my principal, and said, what do I care what I make on my midterms? Because I'm not going to college. Jesus is coming back in 1988. And Lindsay can tell you, Mike loves to tell that story. Um, and so there's got to be a balance there. That I live my life today knowing Jesus could come back at any moment. And it's like a thief in the night. And two will be in the field and one will be taken and one will stay. At the same time, we prepare, we work, knowing that we're doing God's will so that when he comes back, he finds us being faithful. And so there's a balance there, like in everything. In fact, I know the staff laugh whenever I say we got to have balance. When we talk about worship, we got to have balance. When we talk about anything, we got to have balance. Um, and that's, that's really hard because this, the devil loves to work in extremes. That all I do is I sit around with my, my prophecy books and I don't focus on the people who are lost, dying, and going to hell around me. Or... I'm the opposite, and I'm like, I don't, what does it matter? Jesus ain't come back. I can do whatever I want to do. Woo-hoo, partay. And he wa- God wants us to live in that balance. I'm focused in both directions. Okay. So, we've, uh, we've talked in the past about race. Uh, we have talked about that biblically there is no such thing as race. And so I thought that... Um, Today, what we could, we could talk about was the other side of what's dividing in America, is, and that is um, class. The Bible recognizes the fact that there are rich people and there are poor people. Um, Jesus said the poor will always be with us. You see in the New Testament, uh, people like Clopas uh, and sellers of purple who were well off, 
and you have people that were in 1 Corinthians 15, which is, is, is really where you see this laid out very beautifully. I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where Paul is talking about the Lord's Supper. Now, let me give you some background now. What you had was inside of the church, the Lord's Supper was actually a meal where people came together and ate. And you had slaves, people that were actually owned by other people, and you had people that were so wealthy that they were coming and having these huge feasts and getting drunk while the people who were poor were sitting in the background um, not getting anything. And they were just watching on. And Paul says, do you not have homes in which to eat and drink? No, when you come together, it, I expect better of you. And I will say that almost, or maybe more so than race in our country, class divides. And I was, I was having a conversation with Max today. that The enemy within the walls of the church in every regard tries to divide people any way that he can. If it's, if it's this obscure theological point, he's going to try to divide. If it's about this thing, he's going to try to divide. And class is one of those ways that he divides. It's the, one of the ways he's dividing our country. Uh, I, I think of the, the line from that great theological song, uh, Copperhead Row, uh, by, uh, uh, where it says, they draft, draft white trash first round here anyway. That, and I know that many of you, as you've read in the paper, uh, and you've heard the, the politically correct term, white privilege, that you think, because I know I think when I read that, what privilege? I worked three jobs to put myself through college at a time. What are you talking about? And so there, there, is, there is the idea of race, and then there's the idea of class that divides, and, and the idea of money. One of the things, and we talked about this a little bit Sunday, there are people that God blesses financially. In the Old Testament, there was this idea that and Abram, had, he was the richest guy in the land, that God had blessed him, and he had all these finances, and that was brought over into, that, that idea was brought over, but even in the Old Testament, it wasn't always the case, because remember in the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon saying, why is it that that guy, who's a heathen, who doesn't love you, who doesn't know your name, is being blessed, and he has money, and he has riches, and there's this guy who loves you, and he has nothing. Why is that? So you read that in the Old Testament. We certainly see that in the New Testament. And so the example is given of the, the widow giving her might. And the principle is this. There are people, there are people in this church, there are people in this room, that if you were to give $5 towards something, it would hurt. You would feel it. It would affect your day. And there are people in this church that could write a check for $5,000 and it wouldn't affect them. If you're one of those people, please see me after the service. I want to talk to you about some stuff. But, but the point of the widow's might is, is she gave less than a penny and it had an impact on her day. She was willing to give to God to the point that it hurt. So to that person who has much, what did Jesus say about those who have much? To whom much is given, much is required. And I honestly believe that when God blesses us financially, He does that so that we can bless others. The Bible says, Let him who stole steal no more, but work with his hands so that he can have to give. And so there's nothing wrong with someone who has a lot of money, who's wealthy, who's earned it. 
In fact, if they've got a lot of money and they've earned it, God bless them. We don't need to look with envy. We don't need to look and say, why is that the case? What we need to do is pray for them because you know what? And this is, the, in my mind, the whole wealth and prosperity gospel where, the, where it falls apart. The wealth and prosperity gospel says this, that God wants you to be wealthy. God wants you to have lots of money. So all you need to do is lay claim to that in Jesus' name. Why would God want you to have something that almost the entirety of the New Testament says, be careful if you have money. It will rot your soul. Why would God want everybody to have something that, according to the New Testament, is something to be feared? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich man to enter into heaven because the more stuff we have, the harder it is to let go of it. And then the other side of that is perspective. When we envy because people have more than us, it's a sliding scale. You realize that if you have a bank account and a refrigerator to keep food in and a roof over your head, you're one of the wealthiest 10% in the world. We in America are so unbelievably wealthy. I remember mom and dad came to Colombia and saw in Boca Chica, Colombia, uh, which is a little bitty island um, where uh, Cartagena, which is a city that's a resort city, everybody that worked in that resort lived on this little island. And I remember walking up and down the streets in Boca Chica, and if you were under the age of probably seven or eight, you just went naked because they didn't have money for clothes for kids. And you would see little three-year-olds with their tummies distended from malnutrition. Or you would hear a kid tell you how, well, if you're hungry, what you can do is take dirt and put it in a cup and drink it and you won't feel hungry anymore. Or in Turkey where I've met kids that were, their stomach stuck way out to here because the only food that their parents could afford to buy them were, was bread because you could go buy the equivalent of day-old bread for like a nickel or a dime for a loaf. And so they were so constipated and their systems were so backed up that their tummies stuck way out. Those people are poor. In America, the number one health issue among people who are impoverished is obesity. Now, I'm not saying that poverty in America is not real. I'm not saying that it doesn't stink to have more month than paycheck. I, last night, we uh, Ann said, hey, the dishwasher's not working, and um, I took the front panel off and I got my trusty voltometer meter and tested it all the way down and it's the motor and the, impel, uh, the motor unit is what's out on it. So I get online to order a motor unit and find out that a motor unit is $471 because the dishwasher was made in 1989. Um, we ain't got $500 to spend on a new dishwasher. But you know what? I'm not going to go hungry. Lord knows that's not going to be a problem. And so we're all wealthy. And so as we look with envy at other people, we need to keep that in perspective. We need to keep that in, in reality that, that God has blessed this country over in abundance. So there's no place in the church for there to be divisions among those lines. In fact, anything in the church that divides is of the devil. I, I, was, I have a very, very dear friend that God help him, is from Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and he's a big Louisiana fan. 
LSU fan. And uh, he was having to watch the football game Saturday by himself. And so he was texting the fool out of me about, oh, my gosh, can you, what is wrong with the line? And, and about <coughs> halfway through the, the second quarter, he starts telling me, um, well, see, this is why you don't play really difficult teams your first game because you don't want you to got Wisconsin, you're calling that a difficult team? Long and short, I had had a conversation with Garrett a few days before about Tennessee. And I had texted him, uh, being somewhat funny, but be, being accurate as well. I said, Garrett, there is no Tennessee or Alabama. There is no, um, then went shifted, as I recall, to, to pro. There is no Panthers or uh, Falcons, but one Lord, one baptism, one God and Father of all. And, and, and Garrett la- laughed back. Well, I, had, I screenshot that and sent it to Bruce when he started gropping about me slamming on LSU. I said, there is no LSU. And he said, well, thank you for your little senior pastor speech. I appreciate that. But you know what? I've seen churches split over an Alabama-Auburn game. I, we were in a church that made the mistake of having a, a, a social for an Alabama and Auburn game, and some Alabama said something that this Auburn fan didn't like, and before you know it, it was like, and people are leaving the church over it. You know what? The enemy's going to use anything to divide us. Money should never be one of them. And so we have to be very careful there. All right. So any questions about class? <laughs>